Hey, that's a really important question that we just sang about. Who is like the Lord our God? Um, and when you hear that question in the scriptures, it often is in the context of God's glory being on display. And we're going to be turning to a passage. Uh, go ahead and, if you have your Bibles, open to Daniel chapter 7, uh, where you get a picture. We get a picture of that glory on display and, you know, and, and really uh, have reason to be agreeing with the question, who, who else is like this God, right? The uniqueness of our God. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 is on the heels of the more familiar story of Daniel on the lion's den. I suspect probably most of you here today are familiar with Daniel being persecuted and thrown into the, the lion's den. He, God closes the mouths of the lions and, and he survives. And you know, it's a picture of, of God's faithfulness. And you know, Daniel's God is more powerful than all the other, all the other gods. That leads right into this vision that he has. And I'm going to read just two verses just to give us kind of an introduction to the, the content here in chapter 7, and then we're going to kind of look at some of the different places uh, along the way. But let's stand in honor of God's Word, and I'm going to read verses 13 and 14. This is God's Word. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word and for the revelation of Jesus Christ, the the Son of Man, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, whose dominion shall never be taken away, whose kingdom shall never end. And Lord, we thank you that by grace, we can be real members of and participants in your everlasting kingdom. Show us more clearly how that is true, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I chose just these two verses because uh, there are, are two prominent uh, figures that, that are um, joined together here in verses 13 and 14. You have the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. Uh, what many scholars believe is that these verses are, are giving us uh, a, a foretaste, a, a foreshadowing of the ascension and uh, that it's from a heavenly perspective, right? So the, the picture we have of the ascension in Acts chapter 1 is an earthly view, and, and it's, it's actually a, a little bit, uh, it, it's funny to me, uh, in Acts chapter 1, you have this picture of the disciples, and they're with Jesus, and they're on top of the mountain, and, and then the Holy Spirit you know, raises Jesus. Uh, he ascends into heaven, and the disciples are sort of standing there, and these two angels show up, and they say, um, so guys, what's going on? You're standing here looking up into heaven. This same Jesus uh, is going to return the same way he left. And, you know, let's, you know, chop, chop, let's get going. Um, and, and, and even in artwork, uh, in religious artwork, there's sort of a, a, a comedy to how uh, visually, how do you depict the ascension? And, and some of the paintings you'll see uh, from, from centuries ago have the disciples all kind of gathered in this band. They're looking up, and all you see are the feet of Jesus sticking out of the you know, top of the image. So 
Like, how do you, from an earthly vantage point, the ascension is, is, is hard to understand the power and, and the importance of, of what's going on there. As Jesus is raised in glory. But here we've got the heavenly perspective. We're not on earth looking up. We're, we're in heaven and, and watching him rise, come, coming toward heaven on a cloud. And it's this throne of majesty. Jesus was crowned with thorns, with a curse uh, on, on earth. And, and here in heaven, he's being crowned with glory and majesty. And, and, uh, and you get this, this remarkable depiction, not only of, of the Son of Man here in verses 13 and 14, but also the Ancient of Days earlier on. Look with me now at verses 9 uh, and following, where... I looked and, and thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Uh, his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open, right? So the Son of Man is this pre-incarnate Christ, you know, ascending into heaven, and he's got all this power and authority and dominion. And here is the Ancient of Days, you know, God proper, uh, God the Father, and, and, a, and an actually really unusual depiction in Scripture. It's probably the most detailed visual representation you have of, of God. And what, what's listed here, we can kind of go through, and, and, and there's, there's symbolism, right? Um, his, his white clothing uh, are, you know, represent his, his purity, and his white you know, hair like wool, uh, that, that certainly is a, an indication of his wisdom and, and so on. But there's thrones, too. Thrones of, of justice and thrones of righteousness, these things that, that we expect from God, that he would judge rightly and fairly and equitably and with justice for the world and so on. And so you see the thrones being gathered in this, not only a throne room, but a courtroom, right? It's a picture of power and authority and justice and, and wisdom. Um, and and did, you, did you hear the multiple references to fire, uh, to fiery flames and wheels of burning fire and, and fire is issuing out uh, from before him. And um, fire isn't just something that the Bible reserves for hell and you know, punishment and so on. Uh, fire has a very refining property. Uh, it's a picture of holiness that you can't go into fire because we're gonna be consumed. We're, we're not holy enough. Uh, Isaiah's, you know, the coal that touches his lips to purify his lips because he's a man of unclean lips, right? So fire's job is to remove the dross, to, to remove the impurity, to remove the evil, to remove the wickedness. It's a picture of, of God's work to purify this world and to get rid of everything that makes us, you know, cry and everything that, that contributes to death and sickness and sadness, Right? And there's thousands of hosts um, gathered around this throne in this throne room, thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 subjects. I mean, you see the, just a visual depiction of the extent of his kingdom and his subjects and you know, kingdoms and kingdoms and 
nations and nations all gathered into this heavenly courtroom. So the Son of Man has all this dominion and authority. The, the Ancient of Days has all this dominion and authority. They're one, right? Um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, mystery there, and we don't have time to get into that. But, but really, um, this throne room gives us a picture of God's glory and justice and majesty on display, and, and you see that all throughout the Old Testament. We're just picking you know, one chapter here to focus on. But we sang about it earlier in, in, in Psalm 113, gives us a great similar shot of, of glory, splendor, majesty. Psalm 113 says, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Who is like this God, right? There's no other God like him. King of kings and Lord of lords, God of God, you know, and uh, so no other power can rival him. We're doing this series called 20 Chapters of Redemptive History because the Old Testament is setting the stage for the New Testament, the, the fullness of the gospel on display to us. And we don't really know the, 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 the details and the significance, the importance of, the, of what's in the New Testament if we don't know what is in the Old Testament and how the Old Testament is preparing our hearts, preparing our eyes to see and feel the, the weight and the significance of Jesus. So what do we know about Jesus that, that helps us see the fullness of, of Daniel chapter 7 the, and, and understand why are we being told these things? Who is like the Lord our God? Who is like this God? We get a picture of, of, of how Jesus is the fullness of this you know, prophecy in Daniel 7 in John 13. Because in John 13, you, you, you get the setup. Um, it's, it's Jesus and it's the Last Supper and they're in the upper room. And during the supper, John 13 tells us, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, Jesus, and then, and then listen to the parallels to what we've already heard about the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, Jesus has received dominion and a kingdom and a, that will never end. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, ascending back to God, Jesus rose from the supper and then paused right there. What do you expect one who's been given all authority and all power and all dominion forever and all times over all nations and all peoples, what do you expect that being, that person to do as he gets up on this, you know, the climax of his kingdom's inauguration coming and the disciples are there and they're just waiting there with bated breath. What's next, Jesus? What are we going to do to see your kingdom come and your will to be done? And they're, they're just waiting for their marching orders. What's he going to do? How's he going to demonstrate his kingdom? How's he going to put on display his power? How's he going to call all nations to worship him? How's he going to vanquish all of his enemies? If you were around that table, if you were one of those disciples, what are you expecting him to do next? I guarantee you none of us would have expected what he actually did. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, 
He tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. He wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He comes to Peter, and Peter says, none of this. You're too high. You're too glorious. You're too amazing to do the work of a slave. Jesus says, you have no idea, Peter. You don't understand my kingdom yet. Who is like this God? Who knows he has all power and all dominion for all time and forever, that all nations will worship him, and he washes our feet. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to relieve burdens as King of kings and Lord of lords, not to impose them. And Jesus came to to heal our wounds, not to inflict them in his quest for more and more power. And Jesus came to forgive our sins, not to rub our noses and our failures and our iniquities. You know that Psalm 113, who is like the Lord our God and you know, all his glory and all of his power on display. Here's how it continues. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the, the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is who our God is. There's no other God like this who uses all of his power, all of his authority to serve and to lift up the needy and to bless the barren. It's an overwhelming privilege to us to know that Jesus didn't just come to care for the the, the poor beggar and the needy invalid and the barren woman long ago. He came to minister to us in our own uh, poverty and infirmity and you know, need, right? That's the beauty of this king, this king who's got dominion for all times and forever, that even now, right now, he is, this is our God, right? This is the kind of God we serve, the one who's high and lifted up, who, who serves, who takes the form of a slave, even would, would give his life for us. So, What Psalm 113 is saying, who is like the Lord our God, is that implies something, right? Our God, meaning my God, meaning your God. Is he your God? Is this the God that you worship? The one who's high lifted up and who serves, who uses his power to bless, not to be served, right? This is the God that uh, Daniel is so overwhelmed with in his vision, and yet there's this contrast. And so we we need to move on. Because there's not only this refrain, who is like our God in Scripture, there's the other refrain, who is like the beast? The beasts of Daniel's prophecy. Same chapter, Daniel 7, look look at verse 2 and following. And um, and some of you are familiar with this vision that that, that Daniel has, and for some of you this is going to be new. So just sit tight. This is a a description of four uh, horrific beasts that that are... um, 
in, in this vision that uh, God has given to Daniel. Uh, and so let's look at the four different beasts. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Um, again, a picture of chaos from the Bible when you see a storm on an ocean or, or even Genesis 1, you know, the spirit hovering over the waters. It's formless and void, and it's a place of chaos. It's a place where there's not order yet, where God hasn't you know, established his kingdom yet. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. So the first beast, verse 4, was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Second beast in verse 5. Behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Verse 6 is the third beast. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And then the last, the worst beast in verse 7 and following, behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns, and I considered the horns, and behold... There came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now, I, I don't know your impressions, what comes to your mind as we read those descriptions, or if that kind of unsettles you, or if you kind of go, well, that's kind of quaint or, or, or fanciful. Um, I think in our, in our age, we get desensitized to some of the biblical imagery and we start looking at it as just, you know, well, that's how ancient people thought and that's kind of mythological or whatever or, or fanciful. And, and it's just about as threatening to us as maybe, you know, Napoleon Dynamite's liger. You know, pretty much my favorite animal. It's bred for magic. And, it's, and there's just not, it's not, that threatening to us. Like, okay, ancient beasts, whatever. But can, can you just put that maybe presupposition aside for a second and put yourself in an ancient context where we're not bombarded by visual images and, and horror and you know, things that really do terrify us and, and imagine what, what the original audience would have been thinking as they're reading this description. They would have been terrified. These, these creaturely constructs with power and teeth, like they're just devouring. They're, they're eating their enemies. And then look at, you know, kind of, I don't, I don't horror movies are not my thing, but I, I'm aware enough to know, like, the things that used to scare people don't scare people anymore. The creatures from the Black Lagoon, you know, where people in the movie theaters are screaming their brains out because they're just so terrified of this, you know, latex, you know, plastic things coming out of the, the pond. 
you know, and Draculas and werewolves and fly people and whatever. They just don't scare us much anymore. But this is intended to be a, a visual that takes evil seriously. There's evil in this world. There's evil in us. It's, it's awful. It's wicked. And it wants nothing more than to consume us. Daniel's um, successive you know, beasts are emerging from this stirred up sea. And, and this image is not isolated to Daniel. Again, we're talking about this story that, that progresses and gets bigger. It has this snowball effect through the Bible of the Old Testament, then it gets to the New Testament. Then you get to Revelation. And Revelation expands on this. And listen, listen to all of the, the parallel you know, uh, images here in Revelation 13 and Daniel 7. John, this time, saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Right? Who is like the beast? Who is like the Lord our God and who is like the beast? There's two fundamental groups of people on the planet. Those who are worshiping God and are trying to hold on to his kingdom and acknowledging and confessing and professing even at the risk of their own lives, he alone has authority, he alone has dominion. I want God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there's other people who are going, no, we don't want that. Who is like this authority? Who is like this power? Who is like this kingdom? Who is like this beast? That's the other group. And so there's this constant battle going on in us and in the world. It's this battle for supremacy. And where do we look for salvation? Where do we go to for our hope and for our security? Where do we run to, right? Like, do we believe that Jesus will triumph or are we wringing our hands and furrowing our, our brows because we're just not sure? We're secretly or maybe overtly wondering if the enemy is going to prevail. And we have a tell, right? Each of us has kind of our poker tell. The way where our, our real belief kind of sneaks out. Whether we're really believing that Jesus is king or somebody else or something else is king. And that tell happens whenever we resort to worldly words and, and angry actions because we really don't think that Jesus' kingdom is the right way to do life. We think that his tactics aren't really applicable in this instance because, well, you know, we need to adopt the world's standards, the world's way of wielding its power, the world's way of saying, no, I want you to serve me instead of me serving you. And that's what, that's where we have to be honest and say, wait a minute, which, which kingdom are we trusting in again? 
Only short-sighted Christians believe that the world's tactics are going to win the ultimate war. We got to play the long game. We need to stay in the scriptures. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus and his throne, his dominion, his kingdom. Because Daniel tells us what happens to the fourth beast, you know, this most terrifying beast. He tells us, verse 11, look, look with me, chapter 7, verse 11. And I looked, and because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. And we can turn to Revelation and see the fate of the dragon too, right? Play the long game. Play by Jesus' rules. So, look, four beasts. Um, I thought I'm going to take just five minutes and also give an aside to four interpretations of the beasts because we're confused here. If, you, if you've been in Christian circles, if you're new to the Bible and new to the church, then you can check out right now. But for those of you who are going, yeah, these beasts, like, ooh, which, which beast is representing which government and which power and so on? You know, like we play that game, the prophecy game. And there's four options. These are either ancient enemies or modern enemies or sort of allegorical enemies or just Enemies everywhere. And so for those who think these are ancient en enemies, there's, there's actually a lot of you know, merit to, to this particular position because scholars and, and theologians will all look at the ancient enemies of God and they'll go, these, these beasts kind of have some parallels to some of the ways that these ancient civilizations and governments were depicted. Like Babylon, you know, this, this lion with eagle's wings, uh, th there's images of that creature in Babylonian, you know, governments and throne rooms and so on. So people suspect that that first beast represents Babylon. The next beast, the bear, maybe that's the Medo-Persian empire. Uh, the third beast, you know, this really fast cheetah or cougar or whatever animal with four bird's wings, you know, that's Greece because Alexander the Great just blew through the Mediterranean in his conquest of Persia and all these other kingdoms. And then you get to these, this fourth beast who's kind of undescribable, just these horns with eyes and blasphemies and teeth and claws and so on. Well, that's Rome. You know, all the successive emperors and all of the, the pain inflicted on the Christian community especially. And, and, I, and I kind of appreciate, I respect the ancient enemies theory because at least it gives credence to the fact that Daniel's writing to real people who are undergoing real suffering and they need real encouragement from a real God who cares for them, right? But it kind of leaves us in a place where we're going, well, is that just somebody else's mail? Is Daniel 7 written for us? So it has its weaknesses too. And then you've got those um, who think, no, these are modern enemies. And it's our job to kind of you know, look through the, the, the pages of, you know, or, or, or flip through your, your newsfeed. We used to say newspapers. Uh, flip through your newspaper to, or your newsfeed to find out, well, which, which, which prophecy is applying to which, you know, evil emperor or government or, or campaign. And, you know, remember Gorbachev and his, you know, birthmark and the mark of the beast? Uh, I don't know. Um, th that, that theory has the, the corollary weakness, which means that, well, Daniel's original audience was reading our mail. And it, this really didn't apply to them. It's not to say that Putin isn't evil, but I don't know that he's one of these beasts. You got the allegory enemies thing, which is just sort of like, uh, it just kind of over-spiritualizes the beasts, over 
singularizes them, per personalizes them, because it just become, becomes whatever your struggle is, whatever, whatever is in the way of your progress in life or as a Christian, that's your, your beast, right? Uh, and, and, and that's not to diminish you know, real struggles that each one of us have, but let's not forget that what Daniel 7 is addressing is not amorphous you know, psychological problems that individuals have. It's real, concrete, physical, tangible systems of government and power and evil that are oppressing real people. And God holds these real powers and real systems accountable for their evil. Now, systems are all made up of people and our individual you know, beasts. But don't miss the communal and the real. Hey, look, I think the best way to look at Daniel 7 and a bunch of other prophecies like it is to think of these as enemies that are everywhere at all times, right? It could be, right, that these four beasts are representing all the enemies of God at all times because just like you have the comprehensive language of the four winds in Daniel 7 or the four horsemen in Revelation, you know, that, that the four beasts really just, look, any and all kinds of evil, God's going to hold accountable. God's going to judge. He's going to purify his world. And there's going to come a time where there's not going to be any more beasts. And I think this is the best approach. I, um, it's not going to sell a lot of, you know, prophecy conference tickets. I get it. And it's not going to stir up the, the base of whoever's looking for the next Antichrist, you know, to get everybody in a lather about. But I think it's a more sensible and sane approach to Scripture. But you've got to decide for yourselves. So God reigns at all times and all places. That's what Daniel 7 is trying to drive home. And that's what we need to remember too. Look, uh, look again at verse 15, and we want to talk about the truth concerning all this. Like what's, what does the angel, God's messenger, tell Daniel about this vision? As for me, my spirit had within me was anxious, right? Do you hear Daniel saying that he's anxious? And the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. And he told me and made it known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. There will be no end to the true and only kingdom that is enduring. Yes, there's plenty of rivals. And there's plenty of people saying, what about, who is like this beast? Who is like this king? Who is like this government? But all God's people can say, who is like the Lord our God? What about Daniel? As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. And the visions in my head alarmed me. Do you remember, uh, if you, if you, again, if you've been in church for a while, do you remember the old kid's song, Dare to be a Daniel? Dare to be a Daniel. You stand, you stand proud, you stand strong in that lion's den, right? Um, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. Hold the gospel banner high, on to victory grand, Satan and his hosts defy and shout for Daniel's band. 
on Daniel's good day, yeah. But what about verse 15? My spirit within me was anxious. The visions in my head alarmed me. Look at verse 19. I mean, think about what Daniel has seen, right? He's certainly seen the, the first part of chapter 7. Well, go back to chapter 6. He has seen God shut the mouths of the lions and seen God's name vindicated, his life saved, you know, the king honoring him, punishing his you know, false accusers. And then he sees the four beasts and that vision. And then he sees the vision of the Son of Man. And then he sees the Ancient of Days. And then you get to verse 19, and, this, and he's wanting to know the truth concerning these things. And in verse 19, he says, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. Verse 28, as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. He's pale and he's panicking because he can't get over what he saw, the vision of the fourth beast. And how many of you can relate to being kind of on two different, you know, I don't know, blocks of ice and they're you know, drifting apart, floating apart, and you're kind of doing this. Because on the one hand, you can see the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. On the other hand, you see on the fourth beast and he's just shaking. He's scared. Hebrews 2, we, we read this last week, um, but just, again, I think it's really applicable and helpful the author says, you made the Son of Man, right? This reference to Jesus. The Son of Man for a little while lower than the angels. And you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet, right? No question about Jesus reigns. We know that. Amen. But now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Sometimes we see beasts, and sometimes we, we can't stop thinking about what terrifies us. What scares you? No. What terrifies you? We're not in heaven yet. We, we live south of there, and, and we live in this broken world with things that go bump in the night. Everybody's scared of something, terrified of something. Maybe it's death, or um, maybe it's dying. I want to confess one of my fears, probably probably a terror. Uh, It's not infrequent in the winter when I'm out walking my dog at night and I'm cold. I'm waiting for my stupid dog to do his business because I'm cold. And every now and then I get this kind of panic of, oh my gosh, what would it be like to freeze to death? That scares me to death. 
burning to death doesn't sound like a good option either, to, for, for that matter, if I can be honest, uh, right? I'm, I'm, we're not so much afraid of dying if, if we're Christians, but yeah, we're afraid of how we die. Um, what about somebody finding out your secret? That scares you to death. Somebody finding out you're a fraud, a failure. Somebody finding out you're an addict. Somebody finding out your sexual preference. Somebody finding out your sexual sin. Somebody finding out that shady bit of business You're here, and you love Jesus, but your heart's beating a little faster now that I'm kind of like pushing the envelope and getting closer to maybe your secret. What about the past? And I'm, I'm going to stop here because I don't want to like, I'm not here to trigger anybody, but look, everybody's got stuff that terrifies us. Someone has done something to you in the past that still haunts you today, or you did something to someone. And you cannot stop thinking about those teeth. I'm not here to revisit trauma, but the memories are real. The, the, the terror is real. And no matter how hard we try to keep our focus on God's glory, our, our attention keeps flitting back to what scares us. And you're not alone. Because Daniel did the same thing. He had a vision of the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man coming with power, dominion, and authority. Thousands and thousands times ten thousands worshiping him. And tell me about the fourth beast. That's what I want to know about. Because he was terrified. And Daniel wasn't alone. Because Jesus was terrified In Gethsemane, as that, the, the, the prospect of what he was about to face, the, the teeth that were in front of him, drinking that cup to its dregs terrified him. He understands the fear, he understands the terror, but he never took his eyes off of God. And because he didn't, he was faithful to complete his mission. And he went to the cross to take away our sins, to take the sting out of death, to take away the terror, to forgive the sins by which we have terrorized others. And he's a faithful high priest. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking back to Jesus when we get distracted by what we're afraid of. Get help. We can grow. We can be sanctified. We can become less controlled by the fear. 
We can become more oriented toward God's kingdom. Talk to somebody if, you, if this is still a secret. Don't let the enemy hold you hostage to terror. Uh, some pastoral advice from the grave from Jack Miller. He once wrote, my prayer is that the Spirit will strengthen you with power to take in Christ's life by faith. The devil's strategy, hell's strategy, is to get us problem-centered, beast-centered. Problem-centered rather than Christ-centered. Jesus is with us. He will never lose his focus on us. He will never be distracted by the beast. And he's not fed up with you because of your fear. He's, he knows the fear and worse, and he's compassionate toward us. And he knows our sin, and he forgives us. Who is like the Lord our God? Let's pray to him. Lord, uh, we are a, a fearful bunch. Uh, thank you for how you comforted your disciples um, to not be afraid, uh, little flock. Uh, you know our fear, you know our terror, you know our proclivity to be distracted by what goes bump in the night, and yet you, uh, you love us, and you're patient with us, and you heal us, and you fill our minds and our hearts with greater and better visions of what lies ahead. And we pray, please, more and more, uh, fill our, our field of vision with your glory, your goodness, your justice, uh, your fire, your power, your authority, and your, uh, your eternity. Lord, let us see uh, the enemies around us for what they are, uh, and Lord, let us see the enemy within us for what it is. Lord, that you forgive sins that you take the sting out of death, that you love us. Lord, thank you for calling us your own and making us agents, not just recipients, but agents in your kingdom to spread this good news to the nations, that all nations need to know this God, this Savior. Lord, would you help us to begin with our neighbors? We pray this in Jesus' name.